1 John chapter 2, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to a passage that we began looking at last week, and we're in a study of this letter, 1 John, and we are in chapter 2, and this morning I want to return to verses 3 through 6. December 4th, 1893, there were three young men, their names were Walter Gowans, Roland Bingham, Thomas Kent. They were all of Toronto, uh, Canada. But they arrived by ship in Lagos, Nigeria. These three young men, they were all in their 20s, but they had a vision to evangelize the 60 million unreached people of sub-Saharan Africa, which at the time was referred to simply as the Sudan. Now, they were not able to really garner the support from interested established missions organizations, but that didn't deter them any. And many of those organizations had said that reaching the Sudan was impossible. It was just too rough of a region. The people were uh, too hard to reach. But these three young men set out alone and they, they formed what became known as the Sudan Interior Mission Craig, known today simply as SIM. And Walter Gowans, his mother, really she was a prayer warrior and she had been such a supportive voice in their desire to take the gospel to that region of the world. In fact, it was Walter Gowans who had a major impact on his friend Roland Bingham. And it was Gowans and his mother who really recruited Bingham for the task of accompanying the the trio to go to the Sudan. But Roland Bingham would later write this. He said, it was her impassioned pleading that linked my life with the Sudan. One day in the quietness of her parlor, he said, we sat there and she told us of how God had called a daughter to China and her oldest son to the Sudan. And he said that she spread out before me the vast extent of those thousands of miles and she explained to me the lostness, the teeming masses of people. And he said, before I left, the Lord used Walter Cowan's mother to place within my heart a burden for the people of the Sudan. So the three young men set out. A year and a half later, Bingham returned to Canada all by himself. Walter Cowan's Thomas Kent, within just two or three months of being there, they both died on the field, and they were buried in the interior of Nigeria. And Roland Bingham would later write this. He said, I've, I returned and visited Miss Gowans to return to her the few personal belongings of her son, and she met me with an extended hand, and we stood there for some time in silence. She then said these words, Mr. Bingham, I would rather have had Walter go out to the Sudan and die there all alone than to have him home today disobeying his Lord. I would rather have had my son go to the Sudan and die there alone than to have him here at home today all while disobeying his Lord. Roland Bingham would reflect on that, and he said that even death is not failure whenever we're obedient to God. 
This passage of Scripture that we're at here uh, in 1 John chapter 2, especially verses 3 through 6, is a very important passage as it deals with the importance of obedience in the Christian's life and how obedience is the grounds for our assurance. Every Christian needs to live with the assurance of his salvation because this is the key to joy. And so John wrote to encourage believers in the truth that we can know for sure that we're saved. And there's really no way of testing the validity of your faith apart from an obedient life. True saving faith is always tangible. It's not something that's kept in the realm of ideas. It's not something that's word only. And the true test of faith is not found so much in what we say, but in what we do. James says as much in his little book when he says that faith without works is dead. It's useless. We know that we're not saved by our works, but make no mistake about it, we are saved for the purpose of good works, which Paul says in Ephesians 2 that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so obedience is uh, in many ways, it's tangible proof that a person has passed from death unto life. Obedience from the heart, it's visible proof that a person has been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. So I'm preaching from this thought once more, the obedience test. Notice what the Apostle John writes here, beginning in verse 3 in 1 John chapter 2. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The obedience test. In fact, the Apostle John uh, mentions at least three or four tests by which you and I can have assurance that we've come to know Christ. One of those is the doctrinal test. What do you believe about Christ? Do you believe the truth of God's Word, that He is God in the flesh? That's the doctrinal test. Uh, There is the social test. Uh, If you have a love in your heart for the people of God, if you've got love for your brother, love for your sister, John says that this is evidence that you have come to know Christ. And in this passage, there's the obedience test or the ethical test. And obedience is one of those things that's so critical for assurance in the Christian life. Now, what's amazing is that there are really only 303 vocabulary words that are used in 1 John. You've got five chapters made up of 2,134 words And if there are only 303 vocabulary words in the book, that means that John often reuses the same words. Over and over again, John will use the same words, and his writing style is circular, and he makes these arguments and keeps coming back to these arguments. And so you see this even in this passage here, because the word know, it's used four times. The phrase in him, this is used at least three times. The word keep is used three times. Uh, All told, the word know is used 37 times in 1 John. 
The word love is used some 45 times in 1 John. The word abide is used 22 times by John in this letter. So he's using the same words and he's making this point. And if you take these key words and you put them together here in these verses that we've read, you're really able to get to the main point of the passage. And here it is. We know that we are in Christ if we keep his commandments. If there's a pattern of obedience in my life and in your life, then this is grounds for assurance. We know that we've come to know Christ. And so really, I want to pick up where we last left off last week, and I really didn't get much further than verse 3, where the Apostle John tells us that obedience is essential for assurance. Obedience is essential for assurance. He says, and by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he uses this word know here a couple of different ways. The first usage of the word, it's a present tense verb, which carries the idea that we are continually being able to know. And it speaks of a progressive knowledge gained by experience. The second way he uses the word, uh, it's in the perfect tense, which means we've come to know God in a complete way. So that just simply means that you can know presently that you've come to know God in a complete way. We know what God has revealed about himself, but John is not simply referring to information here. He's referring to intimacy. We know God, and we've come to know God, and the Christian life is one in which we are, we are ever coming to know him. Have you ever thought about that? You're daily growing in intimacy and knowledge of the one who saved you by his grace. So John's not just referring to head knowledge alone, but to heart knowledge. Not simply to information, but intimacy. And he says, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And again, that word keep is in the present tense. It indicates continual, regular obedience. And he's not talking about this perfectionist, uh, uh, perfectionism that would say the Christian life is one of perfection and the believer never stumbles because we know by experience that's certainly not the case. And yet when we do sin, keep in mind what John has already said back up in verses 1 and 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you do sin, you have an advocate. Jesus is your advocate. And his propitiation is sufficient. Verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what he's describing then here in verse 3 is just this regular consistent pattern of believers a pattern of obedience in the life of believers that points to uh, their salvation. It's evidence that the life of God has come to take up residence in the believer's life. And so obedience then, this is essential for assurance. And that's what John is saying here in these verses. Now notice the second thing. The second thing is this, obedience is evidence of redemption. He goes on in verse 4 and says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now keep in mind the obedience that John is describing here in this passage. This is not a fleshly form of legalism. It's not sheer effort or willpower by which the believer obeys. 
But it's a spirit-empowered life that delights in obeying and serving God. It's evidence of the life of God in the believer. And so John is saying that if this desire for obedience is present within you and you're walking in obedience to God's commands, John is saying this is grounds for assurance that you've come to know God. And it's evidence of redemption in your life. And then you compare this to the one who says, I know God, but there's no pattern of obedience in that person's life. John is very clear here. He says this person is a liar and the truth is not in him. His life has never been changed. There's no evidence in his life to bear witness to the fact that he's passed from death unto life. You know what evidence is? Evidence is a sign that shows something to be true. Now, one of the reasons behind John's um, writing, again, I've told you this, but there were several uh, false teachers in John's day uh, who were spreading lies and false teaching throughout many of the churches in Asia Minor. They were known as Gnostics. And so it could be very well true that the Apostle John here is dealing with some of these false teachers, referring to those who claimed to know God, but they weren't living in obedience to his word. The way in which they lived contradicted their claims. And John wants his readers to not be confused. And so he's saying that a person is lying if they claim to know God, but they don't keep his commandments. That is, there's no pattern of obedience in the person's life. The truth is not in such a person. And so John is saying, don't go seeking these out for spiritual counsel. Don't buy into their religious claims. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says of this, uh, he says it means that truth should be sought not from the man who has intellectual qualifications alone, but rather from the man whose claim to know spiritual things is backed up by godly character. Don't go seeking spiritual counsel from these false teachers who boast all kinds of knowledge and wisdom, but there's no godly life to back up what they're saying. And furthermore, what they're saying is not consistent with what God's already revealed. And so John is warning his readers against these counterfeits, these false teachers, And he's saying the best proof that we've come to know Christ and are members of the family of God is a life of consistent obedience to him. Now, as John is writing these words, I can't help but believe that he's going back in his mind, perhaps, to the upper room and the night in which Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. You remember that encounter? Think about John chapters 14, 15, 16, the intimate conversation that Jesus has with his followers there in that upper room where in chapter 14 uh, he says if you love me you will keep my commandments he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him a few verses later in that same chapter he goes on and says if anyone loves me he will keep my word My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. So it speaks of deep, intimate relationship expressed through obedience. Jesus told his disciples, evidence that you love me and evidence that the Spirit of God has come to live within you will be a consistent pattern of obedience in your life. Luke's gospel uh, in Luke chapter 22 sort of sets this in context and says that as Jesus is observing the Last Supper, 
and, and, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Here's what he says that same night. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So by means of the new covenant, Jesus is inaugurating the new covenant that night in the upper room with his disciples. What's the new covenant? Well, it goes back to something that the prophet Jeremiah, uh, the Lord had promised through Jeremiah. The Lord also promised through the prophet Ezekiel. uh, This way in which God would deal with the problem of the heart. And he would write his laws upon the hearts of his people. By means of his indwelling spirit, the commands of God would move from being an external to an internal reality. In fact, keep your finger here in 1 John. Why don't you go to Jeremiah 31 and and look at this passage for just a second. It's the promise of the new covenant. The very thing that Jesus is promising John and those disciples, the upper room, when he's talking about, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As he's inaugurating the new covenant, what is that referring to? We'll go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and and look at what the prophet Jeremiah says, God speaking through him. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, by the way, how had Israel responded to the terms of the covenant? They didn't keep it, did they? God was faithful, but God's people were unfaithful. But is he going to cast away his people? No, listen to what God is saying. He's saying, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the new covenant that God would make with his people is one in which every individual would know the Lord by means of a personal relationship. And the prophet Ezekiel says the same thing. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. God says that I will give them one heart, I will put a new spirit within them, I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. It says the same thing several chapters later. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the new covenant promise, folks, contains this idea that God would do something on the inside of believers to cause them to walk in his commands. He's going to change them from the inside out. He's going to cleanse them from sin. He's going to transform their mind, transform their heart, place his spirit within them to empower them to be obedient. 
And so in that way, God's new covenant promise, it points forward to what he would do for humanity through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was referring to there in the upper room. That's what John's describing in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, a new heart, a new life, the indwelling spirit of Christ. This is the provision that God has made for you and me in Christ. And so when John is calling for obedience in the life of the Christian, listen to me. You need to understand that this is a spirit-empowered obedience that's characteristic of a believer who's come to experience the benefit and blessing of the new covenant promise of God, where God has changed you from the inside, where God's spirit has come to take up residence on the inside of you and empower your obedience. So when God commands me to do something as a believer, that does not mean that I'm left up to my own resources to carry out that command. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said that God's commands are always his enablements. What God commands us to do, God also empowers us to do. And and listen, aren't you grateful that when the Scripture commands us to be obedient, God gives us the resources and the power and the life within to obey? It's the life of God in you. That's why the Christian life is a supernatural life. It's not a little bit of external religion that you got when you got saved. No, listen, you came to know the living God. And he came to live within you by means of his spirit to empower you. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 8, where he says that the righteous requirement of the law has been met in the believer. Now listen to this, Romans 8, 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, maybe you've read that or maybe you've heard that and you're thinking, okay, well, Is Paul saying the righteous requirement of the law has been met for us? You'd think that's his argument. The righteous requirement of the law has been met for us. But that's not what he's saying there. He's saying that God sent Christ to die so that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. Let me ask you this question. Has Jesus done something for us? Has he done something for you? Absolutely. Uh, what has he done for me? Well, he's, he's, he's kept the law of God perfectly. He's, he was obedient. Not one time was he ever guilty of sin. He kept the law in perfect obedience. And yet he suffered and he died on a cross in my place. Yes, he's done something for me. He's suffered for me. He's died for me. He lives presently for me. But the Bible says that he did something for us in order to do something in us. See, he's not just done something for you. He's also done something in you. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about there when he's referring to the righteous requirement of the law being met in us. He's talking about how God has fulfilled his new covenant promise. The very thing that the prophets foretold. The promise that God would do something on the inside of the believer whereby the Spirit of God would come to live inside the believer and produce within the believer a heart for obedience and empower the the believer to be obedient to God's Word. That's the promise here. That's what Paul's referring to here when he says the righteous requirement of the law has been met in us. Which is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he makes a statement like this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may think, okay, what's the big deal about that? But let me tell you something. When Jesus made that statement to his Jewish audience, the Jewish audience sit there looking at each other, they're thinking, who's more righteous than the Pharisees? Here are the guys who are meticulous in their rule-keeping. And yet Jesus is saying that you've got to have a greater righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he referring to? He's referring to imputed righteousness. He's referring to God's own righteousness, the righteousness that is received through faith. And that's the righteousness that's been credited to your account as a believer in Jesus. This is why Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says something like this in Matthew chapter 6. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does that mean? Listen to me. It means those who have received this imputed righteousness, evidence that they've received that righteousness will be forgiveness that they extend to those who wrong them. They won't hold things over the heads of other people. They won't harbor grudges. They won't mistreat people because they understand something. God's forgiven me in Jesus Christ. He's declared me to be righteous. How in the world could I ever hold something else over the head of someone else? See, this is what it means when the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us as a believer. It means that we've been changed from the inside out. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. Let me give you another evidence of this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more now in my absence. Listen to this. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does he say work for? No, it's not what he says. Don't work for your salvation. He says you work it out. But he goes right on, he follows that up by saying that it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. So it means I am simply working out in obedience what God has worked in me by means of his life, by means of his spirit, by means of his power. So the Christian life, it's not just simply me struggling and me trying through sheer willpower and self-effort. No, it's me yielding my life to the power of the one who's come to live within me. That's what this is. It's God who works in the Christian, both to will and do of his own good pleasure. So God doesn't give us a command and then sit back and watch us fail at it. No, he gives us the command as well as the power to obey that command. 
And so the Christian's life, your daily life means, you know something? It means, it means I realize I've got to die to myself every day. I've got to yield to the lordship, the power, and the control of the one who's come to live within me. And it's his life in me. It's Christ in me. This is the hope of glory. You realize what you got when you got saved? Man, you got it all. God came to live within you by means of his spirit. And it's God's spirit who empowers your obedience. And so keep all of this in mind when you read what the Apostle John is saying here. So how can I know that I know Christ? John says by keeping his commandments. This change has taken place in my life from the inside out. And the word that John uses, keep, keep his commandments, this carries the idea of looking upon something as if it were a treasure and then guarding it as such. It's an amazing word. This is how the believer views the commands of Christ. I treasure them. I keep them. I store them up in my life and in my heart. It's the way the psalmist views God's commandments. Psalm 119, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. So, so here's the question. Do you love his word? Do you desire to obey his word because it's precious treasure? Then know that John says this is evidence that redemption has taken place in your heart and in your life. It's evidence of the life of God in you as a believer. Love and obedience for the word of God. This is evidence of transformation. Now notice the third thing here, obedience. John says it's expressed through abiding. Not only is it essential for assurance and not only is it evidence of redemption, but it's expressed through abiding. Look at what he says there, verses five and six. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, he's using the word keep. The one who keeps God's word. The one who keeps his eye upon it. The one who guards it. The one who treasures it. This is the one in whom the love of God is perfected. And that phrase, love of God there... Uh, the idea is this is love for God. It means love for God is possessed by the one who obeys God. In other words, if a man or a woman loves God, he will seek to obey God by keeping his commandments. And so the obedience then in this person's life is the evidence that a person has love for God. Because we obey the one that we love. And love then becomes the motivation in the believer's life. Why is it that I obey God? Is it because he's going to zap me if I don't? Is, is it an obedience that's motivated simply out of fear or some reluctant sense of duty? No. Obedience is my delight because of the love of God in my heart. I love the Lord. 
and I long to obey the Lord. And I realize that obedience to his word, this is, this is the way that I demonstrate my real love for God. And so this idea of perfected, it means that love is being brought to maturity in a person's life. Maturity sees obedience not merely as duty to be met, but as delight, all because love is the motive. And so John says, by this we may know that we are in him. We have confidence. And the flow of thought here is that the one who obeys God can know that his love for God is being perfected, it's being brought to maturity, and he is in God. And then listen to this. Everyone who says he abides in God obeys him, and the one who says he abides in him ought to walk the way that he walked. You say, what you, what's he referring to here? Well, he's talking about abiding in Christ and following Christ, his example. Whoever abides in him, if you say you abide in Christ, you ought to be walking the same way in which he walked. Now listen, is that not a heavy verse or what? Is the trajectory of my life Is it following, walking along the same pathway that my Lord walked? Am I following in his footsteps? Am I treating people the way that my Lord treated people? Am I loving my enemies the way that my Lord loved his enemies? How did he love his enemies? What did he say? How did he pray for the very ones who crucified him? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. The trajectory of the Lord's life was one of selfless submission to his Father. Is selfless submission characteristic of my life? Because if I'm following in his footsteps, I'm going to be submitted to him. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to look out for me, mine. I don't put others ahead of myself. Wow. Wow. So before you read that and move on to the next verse, you just really need to chew on that for a minute. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now the good news is you're not left to do that in your own strength and in your own effort. Because listen, the Christian life is one of walking after him and in his steps. But you know something? (laughs) He's come to live in you, so he's with you every step of the way. The very one upon whom I'm called to follow in obedience. He's not just there at the finish line waiting for me to finish this race on my own, but he's with me every step of the way, empowering every step of obedience in my life as a believer. It's one thing for him to be at the finish line, but it's another thing for him to live within me from start to finish. That's why the scripture says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. He's going to see us through to the finish line, men and women. And this ought to give you a sense of assurance as a believer, especially if you've wrestled with these issues of, I just don't feel safe. Can I lose my salvation? No, John wants you to know something. He wants you to know that you can know. And if there's that consistent pattern of obedience and love for God's word in your life, 
and you're abiding in Christ, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to stumble. But when you stumble, the Holy Spirit who lives within you, he's going to, he's going to convict you of sin. He's going to remind you that you've got an advocate. You can confess that sin, be forgiven of that sin, and trust that your sins have been forgiven. But man, listen, God wants you to live with a sense of confidence that you know him, that he is your treasure. And you need this, don't you, whenever you face the furnaces of life. We're so prone to wonder. Weakness and failure. How do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? Do we just throw our hands up and cave in to despair? No. You need to know who you are in Christ. And you need to be confident that the one who began a good work in you, my friend, he is going to see it to completion until the day of Christ's appearing. Let's stand for prayer this morning. If you want to be blessed, keep in mind what John has written here, but go, go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and just read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to know who you are in Christ and what God has done for you in Christ, listen, reading that passage will remind you of the wealth of resources that are yours in Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to obedience, it's, it's absolutely critical that you know who you are and what you've been given in Christ. God's not left you to live the Christian life on your own, in your own strength, in your own effort. Obedience is not merely a matter of your self-effort. Does obedience require effort? Absolutely. Discipleship and discipline. These are two words that go hand in hand. But it's a spirit-empowered grace-filled discipline whereby God has given you everything that you need. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says that you've been blessed with all spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? Every spiritual blessing has already been given to you. But how many times do we end up praying things like this? Lord, I need more patience in my life. More peace, because I worry so much, Lord. I need more confidence. You need to be reminded you've already been given everything that you need as far as obedience is concerned. You simply need to re realize what you've been given and by faith appropriate those resources. They're already yours. They're already yours. The vault of heaven has been opened up to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, Lord, that what you command us to do, Lord, you also empower us to do. Thank you that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. By means of your new covenant promise, Lord, you've given us a new heart. You've come to live within us as your people, your spirit. And so where the Apostle John, Lord, is calling upon us 
If we abide in Him, we're going to be walking along the same pathway that our Lord walked. But how comforting it is, Lord, for us to know that He's with us and in us every step of the way. And what He began in us, He'll see it through to completion until we cross the finish line. All by grace. Take these truths, Lord. Seal them up in our hearts and lives for Christ's sake. Amen.